The Remedial Herstory Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the primary and secondary history curriculum. To help us meet our goal, we produce media, lesson plans, and so much more. You can check it out on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Our project is funded through grants and by patrons, potentially like you. Thank you to our patrons, Jeff, Barbara, Brooke, Christian, Kent, Jenna, Nancy, Megan, Leah, Mark, Nicole, Alicia, Katia, Michelle, Jessica, Laura, Jackie, Annabelle, Dawn, and Megan. If you would like to join these wonderful people and become a patron, you can head over to patreon.com and become a supporter of the Remedial Herstory Project. You too can help us reform education and allow women to be seen, heard, and complicated. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? In this episode, we are going to Stonewall. Yes. Sort of. Oh, I'm still here for it. (laughs) Take me to Stonewall. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. In this episode, we are asking the questions, were gay bars a religious experience for gay people before <laughs> Stonewall? Sorry, I'm chuckling. I know you are. I'm so excited. For I know you a to lot listen. about Stonewall just because of my work in HR. Yeah, and it's a big moment and turning point for American culture. Yeah. Um, but for those listening who don't know, maybe we should talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So um, the Stonewall riots break out in New York City. We're going to get into that history a little bit more with our guest today. Her name is Dr. Marie Cartier. She is um, a professor in Southern California, and um, she's a religious scholar, so her PhD is in religion. And she was looking at, um, as a as a gay woman herself, um, she was interested in where gay people prior to Stonewall found a safe space to be their true selves. Yeah. And um her experience was that and she this was what she did her dissertation on and um she found that it was at these gay bars that that was the safest place which where mm-hmm. people could feel their home whole. Yeah. and whole and through her background in theology, she mm-hmm. realized like that's a religious, these were religious experiences that people were having in these gay Interesting. bars. And um, so it's it's really fascinating. We're gonna talk about basically the pre-Stonewall period and how um people gay people navigated the world, um, how they interacted with one another in US culture before being out, being proud, being, you know, able to be able to do those things, um, in the dominant culture was, um, heterosexual. Yeah. Cis relationship. Yeah. Yeah. You know, before they were able to do that. And, um, we're also going to talk about this, you know, Stonewall as this watershed moment and the role that women played in Stonewall, which Mm -hmm. is sometimes, overshadowed because I when I picture Stonewall, I picture trans women. And, you know, that is 
a, I think, a powerful image. Um, and there are also lots of lesbians and what she calls butch women <laughs> surrounding them. And apparently the first punch was thrown by a lesbian woman um, yeah. at Stonewall, which is kind of interesting. Does she get into, I mean, some of the things that I've learned about a little bit is that um, trans women have really had to fight for their place in this cause and they were kind of the first into the battle and then a lot of lesbian groups kind of came up right behind them and took the noise and then trans women got pushed to the side of the fight and it was kind of like this tug of war that they're all fighting for equality and community and space. Um, so I'd be so curious to hear more about her thoughts on on how it, take, it comes forward and where this goes. Yeah. So this is a very powerful episode, um, and I'm so excited. So let's have um, Dr. Marie Cartier introduce herself to our audience. My name is Dr. Marie Cartier, and I teach gender women's studies and queer studies at California State University, Northridge. And uh, my doctoral research was, uh, my PhD is in religion, and I interviewed 102 people primarily to prove that the gay bar prior to 1973 was an alternate church space for people exiled from all other religions. And in that period, prior to 1973, we can go into it, what the reality was like for gay people and why the gay bars were so important. And my um, research, my dissertation uh, was published as a book called Baby, You Are My Religion, Women, Gay Bars and Theology Before Stonewall by Rutledge in 2014. And folks can find your book on Amazon, I recently found out. So that's... Oh, exciting. yeah. Folks can find it. Um, well, I don't want to say everywhere, but... Yeah, it's everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully they can find it in their local uh, gender studies classroom. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you... To me, I would not... When I think about bars... I don't think religion typically. So how did you make that jump? How did you get into this kind, this research? That's such a great question. And I talk about it in the introduction to the book a little bit, how I came there, but I was doing a one woman show. Um, I am a, a performance artist, artist. I've done a lot of um, theater. I used to run a company in Colorado and currently I'm uh, in Southern California, but um, I was doing a show called Ballistic Femme. And it was in the late 90s. And I was performing. It was really about uh, butch femme dynamics, like masculine, feminine, uh, lesbian pairings that were really popular in the 50s and repopularized in the 80s and 90s. And um, it was a kind of way of being queer that was very sexual, very a, a very sexual presentation to have two women walking down the street that you knew were lesbians just because of the way that they presented, right? So that was my whole show was Ballistic Femme. And I'm like a feminist femme. Um, anyway, there's this whole show. And so I'm doing the show in San Francisco. It's sold out, you know, and I'm about ready to go on stage. And the light designer comes from behind the lights as I'm about ready to go on stage and says, you know, do you know the history of Butch Femme? You know what the history of this is? And I'm like, no. <laughs> and I'm certainly not going to find out about it right now. Get back there. <laughs> and so, so, but then of course, I'm like, well, what's the history of this like type of pairing, you know? And so after that, I, um, after that show, <laughs> uh, 
I researched it and I was so furious that I didn't know even where this kind of pairing that I was in that I had really thought was a, a sexual, like a way of being was I didn't even know that there was this whole culture that existed in the gay bars prior to the period I was in, which was like the late night, like 97, 98. I didn't even understand that. And so I started looking at that and I had a character. I had a character in that play called Queen Esmeralda and she had all these like kind of funny witty things, but I ended up putting an insert in my play program that says Queen Esmeralda says, read more about it. And I found the books that talked about that, talked about what bar culture was like prior to, I mean, the time I, I came out as a, as a lesbian in 1979. So I found this incredible culture, you know, these bars that were open that were the only public space uh, available to people. And I read Joan Nessel, Restricted Country. I read Persistent Desire. Um, I read Boots of Leather, Slippers of Gold by Madeline Davis and Elizabeth Kennedy. I mean, there wasn't a lot, but I read that stuff. And I put that as a reading list. Queen Esmeralda says, read more about like this culture prior to the time we're talking about. Um, and then through a strange series of events, I ended up in a doctoral program, really because I wanted um, a job, a job, job, you know, like a little more job security than what I had teaching creative writing. Um, so my very first class at Cal, uh, Claremont Graduate University, where I got my PhD, was on religious practices or and I, we were supposed to interview somebody, and I interviewed this uh, old school butch um, called Falcon River. I mean, because she was a part of co a community that I knew, and she told me about being raped by police in Virginia, um, and being like a drag king, um, and being the drag king to beat, literally, on stage, and also by the police, and how how. Like she was raped six times in one night and the, the cops were saying like, I've never done this before. And she said, well, you're doing it now. And that was a story that was very strong also. Oh, and Leslie Feinberg, I also put in Queen Esmeralda reads more about it and um, Stonebridge Blues. And it it was like the real, I mean, I think Leslie's story it, it is true as well. But Falcon was telling me that very, and I was why don't I know this? Like, why don't, why didn't I know that? How come I don't know this history? This is such a strong history. And, um, you know, it's like who benefits from me not knowing this story? Who benefits from me not knowing that there were these people who, who claimed the only available public space at great risk to themselves? Like who benefits from that? Like for me not knowing it. And I'm like, so I wrote that as was my paper in this class. I wrote this up and said, you know, if it wasn't a gay bar, we would think this was religious, uh, faith through works. You know, that's like if it wasn't a gay bar, the way these people held the space, the way they protected each other, what was important to them, community dynamics, a lot of the things that we consider religious, the practices that were happening in those bars of self-protection, identification with a group, community involvement, those things are very much what we think of as religious dynamics, but we wouldn't think about it because it's a bar, right? right. And so right. that's the paper I wrote. And that this teacher, Ann Taves, who's currently now at UC Santa Barbara, she wrote, this could be a master's thesis. Here we are, 12 we years are. later. <laughs> 12 years later, I've interviewed, I've been in, been in the program forever. <laughs> And I've interviewed 102 people, 92 women, 10 men, 
to prove the existence of butch women at Stonewall, to prove and just talk about that the gay bar was the only public place, the only place. I mean, the book could have been called The Only Place. Mm -hmm. All my informants said that was the only place to go except one informant who had her relationship, her gay relationship with her neighbor from nine to three when the husbands were at work. Other than that, everybody went to the bar and it was the only place where you could do everything, everything. I mean, you would have uh, makeup, breakup, birthday. It was the only space. And so I talked to my students about that. You know, how, if these four walls is it for you, that's it. Everything has to happen here, you know, and the, the incredible danger that people went through to be in there. I compare it to the Christians in the catacombs Mm. because most times, like if I met you in a bar in the fifties, you wouldn't even, we wouldn't even tell each other our real names. Yeah. I mean, you might be, you know, who knows red and I might be (laughs) silver and we would not acknowledge each other on the street. Yeah. If any, because if you were with somebody and I didn't see them from the gay bar. I would not want that person to ask you, how do you know her? Right. Because you could lose your job, your apartment, your kids, everything. And so that, that was how I, um, and it was, you know, a super long journey to get all those people and do it all. But that's a long answer to baby, you are my religion. (laughs) Well, I love the title and I think there's something really powerful about it. And it, it's like a mini thesis in, in and of itself. So that's really compelling. Um, I So the time period that you researched is preceding the Stonewall riots and um, and sort of that that's this breakthrough moment, which I think is so exciting because I think a lot of teachers in public schools probably mention Stonewall, hopefully mention Stonewall. Um, and if they don't like do it, but, uh, but, but I think when you have those breakout moments that maybe grab the attention of the heterosexual, you know, kind of like norm community and be like, yo, like this is an issue. You it's sort of like, oh, that was the beginning. It's like, no, 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 that's not the beginning. That's the effect, right? And I, I really love that you got into the the years preceding that and, and the things that led to, to that moment. Um, and also that it's not just in New York, it's happening everywhere that gay bars exist. So that's really- First cool. documented, sorry, the, the first documented resistance against police harassment is actually in Los Angeles, yeah, 1967 yeah. at the Black Cat, which is now a historic landmark in the city. And that every semester I teach a class called LA Gay History and Activism and to try to talk about like LA, you know, uh-huh. LA power, go Rams. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, that we are, uh, you know, part of what, um, is important, Kelsey, in looking at Stonewall is why was it so important? It didn't suddenly become the gay bars were important, right? Like there was something so precious about that space, so precious about, and Judy Garland died that day. There's a lot of reasons why people think um, Stonewall happened, but Stonewall was one of the few bars in the city where you could touch dance, mm-hmm. where you could touch each other. You know, when I moved to um Southern California from Colorado in 1987. I went to a gay bar with my then partner in um, Garden Grove, which is, you know, behind the orange curtain. And um, we were dancing and this flash, this beam of light came 
like shooting at me, you know? And I'm, and then the bouncer came up with a flashlight and she said, you know, girls, this flashlight's got to uh, pass between you. You can't touch here. This is, you know, the law. This is like, they might come in and raid us. That was 1987. Wow. So they were still getting, um, the alcohol bureau was still coming in and hassling gay bars then. And I had no, I mean, I had come from hippie Colorado and I was like, where have I landed? Again, I had no idea that now I know that was common. And so and one of the um, things about Stonewall, the Stonewall Inn is you could touch dance there. I mean, there was different levels of protection provided by the mafia. And so there's really no being gay in America. There's being gay in New York in 1969. There's being gay in Mississippi in 1969. You know, there's being gay in Los Angeles in 1975. And there's being gay in, I mean, there was no mafia protection in the South. That's one of the things that has, as bad as the mafia was in the North, in the South, you could be killed outright by the police I'm, and locals, et cetera, because there wasn't any protection. So there's a lot of stuff my research covers 1940 through 1990, looking at the effects of how important the gay bar was as a as the only place. And it's almost impossible for us to understand that sentence now. Like, if the only place that I could pull this thing out of myself and say, this... And people didn't go to the gay bar because, hey, I think I'm gay. I want to go find people like myself. They went to a gay bar to figure out who they were. Like, I have these feelings inside myself. I have no idea what this is because there's no mirror for me out there of what that is. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to park blocks away many times. I'm going to like go underground. I'm going to try to get there, circle the block. And then when I finally go in, if somebody looks at me and says, Hey, how's it going? You know, I haven't seen you. Parking's weird. Did you get a drink? That's most likely the first time anybody has looked at me as a friend, knowing that I might be gay. Because in the outside world at that time, I'm the nation's highest security risk. More people are let go of their jobs because they're homosexual than because they're communists in the 50s, the Red Scare. Uh, I'm mentally ill by the profession until 1973. I'm considered a felon. I'm considered um, a deviant. I'm considered a sinner in all major and minor religions until 1968. I mean, I've got nothing. So I go in and somebody says, hey, how's it going? Did you get a drink? That's probably the first time anybody's looked at me and thought I might be able to be a friend to you. So it's not like I'm not looking for friends the first time for the most part. I'm seeing if I can be a friend, this hated person in the outside world. I'm looking to see if I can be a friend. So it's you know, it's not like in my sense of how I constructed the theology, it's not like I'm God is my friend. I mean, the idea that some other human might consider me friend material, when somebody looks at me like that, to me, what I call it is baptism. I get baptized in that look. And many people have talked about the power of the gaze, like seeing being seen a certain way. You know, Butler, Judith Butler talks about it. People have talked about it. But for me, um, and I grew up Catholic and I have done work in other uh, religious traditions. Um, 
with the book, but I use Catholic, some Catholic terminology, but this, I, you know, baptism, that I am baptized into feeling like I can be a friend. I could be a friend to somebody. And then um, concrescent creativity, like my theology thought is that I'm in this bar and something's happening. And if I am able to pull out, I can be a friend to somebody, then I can do that to the next person who walks into the bar. And, and I understand that. I understand that trajectory of seeing and believing and accepting and creating community. I understand that in that moment that somebody needs that, that I can see somebody and go, hey, how's it going? And suddenly I am baptized into selfhood. And if that, if those four walls are the only place where that can happen to you, yes, you are going to fight for that. And you're going to fight for that in what we today would term religion. I mean, I am fighting for this space. You know, I talked to a butch woman who was raped six times, right? You know, and I said, why did you go back there? Oh, my God. She goes, because it was the only place that I was home. And I was told that over and over and over again by my informants. It was the only place. It was the only place. And it's it's almost impossible for us to understand that. It was the only place. And I'm not even using my real name. You know, I'm outside of this place. I will not be recognized. I won't be B. I won't be. <laughs> and in this place, I get to be. So I'm going to fight for it. I'm going to fight for it. And that remains consistent for gay bars from the 40s through the 90s. It remains, you know, in the mid 70s, we start to have other places. Lesbian feminism. You start to have bookstores. You start to have concerts. You start to have this community, right? Lesbian feminism. But it still remains very strong. But from the 40s through the early 70s, that's it. That's all the, that's the place you have. You might have, I mean, even Daughters of Belitis, the first lesbian organization, its first conference in San Francisco includes a map for gay bars. There's no place, that, that's it, you know? And no matter how dirty, dangerous, scary. You're going to fight for that because what what else do you have? I mean, if I'm fighting for my right to actually show up in existence somewhere, then that's my spot, you know? And so when I interviewed people, they had such a sense of nostalgia, pride, and connection and they go, "Oh, you know, did you know did you know the sea colony? You know, did you have you has anybody else talked to you about and I thought this is, you know, this is the very language that we use to talk about religion. And I used um, Sheldrake's uh, Spaces for the Sacred. And I thought, you know, it's not a big deal for religious people to talk about the, the sacrality, the religiosity of like the Grand Canyon. Mm -hmm. But it, it's a very big deal to talk about the religiosity, sacrality of the Black Cat, the Sea Colony, the Stonewall Inn, the If Club the open door, you know, the star room, all these places. And when the people who went there talk about it, they're just like, it is, it is like remembering a trip to Oz. There's no place like home. So if you were a high school social studies teacher and you wanted to teach people about those years preceding Stonewall, what are some things that you feel like should be essential in that classroom space? In, in, in that understanding? In so many ways I could answer that question. Um, I think it's re very, very important for people to understand 
the world that that gay people lived in. That gay people prior to 1973, and one of the most important things for me Stonewall is like a cell phone call. You know, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? There's no gay pride. There's no coming out. Nobody's coming. Why would you come out? What are you coming out to? You know, there's no rainbow nation. There's none of that. For me, the most important thing to understand about LGBTQ history is the 1973 change where gay people are no longer mentally ill by the profession. So, and that, you know, very strongly based on Evelyn Hooker's uh, research that a priori, you know, Prior to 1973, you're mentally ill by the profession. And Hooker has these gay male friends. And she's like, because they had not been in therapy before, they didn't think they were mentally ill. And every study on gay people prior to that was like people who'd been in therapy and had already been deemed mentally ill. And so she does this study and presents it to these psychiatrists. And here's her gay male friends in the study. She says, pick out the mentally ill that gay people and they can't do it. And it's like, what? You know, and so to me, and as long as you were mentally ill by the profession, all bets are off. You can't do anything. You, know, you can't keep your kids. You can't keep a job. You're considered and there's no way out. There's not like a gay person can get sane. You can't. So to me, that's understanding what that meant for gay people. And those rules become really strong after World War II. I mean, I guess the big moments in my book. I talk about them by decade. You know, in the 40s, it's actually way easier to be gay than the 50s because people, I mean, one of the things, I mean, this is not visual, but if you see Rosie the Riveter, right? Masculinity is is fine. Great. You're a masculine woman. And we know, unfortunately, we still don't have really good language for gender coding opposite your biology. But like, hey, you're, you know, you're a masculine woman. Join the, the most successful recruitment ever. For the office of war is Rosie's Rosie. And she's used over to everybody's head. You know, Hillary's head gets on the Rosie body, everybody. And so for the first time, people get released from biological families and spread throughout the nation, right? Port cities, really important. California, San Diego, Long Beach, LA, San Pedro, big. And so you have this community and yeah, okay. You might be like a masculine woman or feminine guy, but we need you. And then the war's over. People are coming home. There's this huge, horrible movement. Rosie, go home. But a lot of the gay people were like, oh, hell no. I'm not going back to Idaho, Idaho, wherever the, you know, <laughs> Iowa. I'm going to stay here. And so the gay bar becomes this incredible primary spot where I can still have community. I can still be the person that I sort of was in the military, the factory, whatever. And I'm still going to and there's a great book by Martin Meeker called Context Desired that talks about the kind of information that was passed in the gay bar. Because if it's the only place, then I'm going to go there and I'm going to try. I, I talked to a woman who was an escort for Bloomingdale's because somebody for women executives in the 40s, somebody went and found her and said, can you be an escort for women? Uh, you know, like you knew where to find gay people by going to the gay bar. So. That population knows that outside of the gay bar, they are considered mentally ill, the nation's highest security risk, because you could get sober if you were an alcoholic, you could change your affiliation if you were a communist, but you can't do anything about being gay. So if you're gay, you're nuts. You're you're unstable and you're in the nation's highest security risk because you could be easily swayed, right? 
So all these things are pushing on people, right? I'm nuts. I'm a traitor to my country. By my very being, I'm treasonous. And I'm a sinner. So this one place you have, this extremely contested place that is continually raided in this strange way, protected by the mafia, which is a difficult, you know, that's a big conversation to try to understand. But I would like, I mean, if I had my choice, I would like people to understand the history of the gay bar is crucial because homosexuals have not been able to hold on to that history with pride. And I say it over and over again when I lecture, I said, we don't need to look for history to be proud of. This, I mean, I, I always choke up when I say it because these people, you know, grab this real estate, like this grit, This that they did it with like this grit and determination. They claim this public space at great expense to themselves. And they knew what they were doing. They knew they were trying to create a place for kids coming up. How many people talked to me and said, some older butch, like, you know, shoved me under the table, sent me out the back door so I wouldn't be caught up in the raid. They gave me the fake ID. They understood what they were doing. They understood how crucial it was to have this one tiny spot where you can be seen as a human without all this trappings from the outside world that were so detrimental. So understanding the courage of the gay bar, the courage to claim that space, the ability for real estate. When I uh, teach ethnography, you know, I say people exist in space, you know, people and then space, gay people and the gay bars. I mean, where is the geography that your community that you're interviewing holds and for poor people, people of color, women, queer people, holding geography is so contested. And the gay bar was that contested geography in those decades prior to 1973 that were so difficult to hold on to. So the gay bar rises, you know, it's like the phoenix, up and down, up and down. So I guess um, I want history teachers to say, Gay people have a history they can be proud of, very proud of. We don't need to invent a history. You know, we don't need to look to French feminists or, I mean, not that you shouldn't, but that's not the history. The history of gay bars in America is a history of resilience. The Remedial Herstory Project is hosting its second annual Summer Educators Retreat to help teachers integrate more women's history and literature into their curriculum. Studies show that educators currently teach women's history between 5 and 20% of the time, with 5% being the plurality. Our retreat will feature speakers from around the world and be available online and in person, and provide educators with dozens of packaged lesson plans, videos, and other tools and resources to get women into every unit of their curriculum. The best part is that in-person attendees will get to network and relax with peers who are passionate about working to incorporate the diverse history of half the population all but left out of the history classroom. The retreat will take place at New Hampshire's Common Man Inn and Spa at the heart of the White Mountains of New Hampshire, the best place to be in August. The retreat will take place between August 8th and 10th. Interested people can learn more on our website at www.remedialherstory.com slash summer-educators-retreat.
I read a book um, that was a bunch of, it's called The Good War, and it's a bunch of different primary quotes, uh, primary uh, interviews with people in World War II. And one of them was a gay man, and he was talking about the chapters on machoism. Um, And it's, you know, he was talking basically about how he was free to be himself in that time period. So I'm really connecting with that that bit that you were talking about, about how disruptive World War II would have been to those those norms. And like you said, traveling and getting people out, I think that's incredible. I It strikes me now, knowing everything that I know about women's involvement in World War II, that they also were mobilized. They were also like segregated by gender. And so that would have meant more women are hanging out with lots of other women they don't know. And if you're gay, this is a great opportunity to sort of like meet people and Mm -hmm. and have those connections. So, um, and, you know, and it's interesting too the people that stayed on in the wax and, um, and whatnot after the war, um, there was a lot of fear of being found out to be gay within the military. So, and that was into the 70s, well into the 70s as Vietnam is continuing. So it's past that, I mean, past that, my wife had trouble with that 1979. So yeah. Yeah. In the military. Well, the next, yeah presently with all the trans issues too. So it's just, it's so, such a compelling, um, I, I think what you're, what you're really highlighting is how a lot of this is like, because it's like, you've said a million times, this is their only play. Like, this is the place where you can go. This is the way that you can make those connections and build those relationships. So, so interesting and powerful. I guess I'm curious in your book, what is it about the bar that then becomes revel- about this like religion and this re- um, these relationships that are being built that can then lead to something like what we see in Stonewall and elsewhere, um, the black cat as revolutionary, right? And, and, and rebellious and taking, you know, how do you go from the fear of being found out to the pride of we're out. You know, what, what, what's that transition for these people like, that you interviewed like? I think that's a really good question. It's actually something I posed to my students yesterday in a queer studies class. It's like, you know, when you interview people from the decades prior, you know, in some ways you want them to be able to think about that period from today. And that's not possible. You know, when I was, and what the example I used is that when I was 20, I'm 60, when I was 20, gay marriage was a fiction. I wasn't I wasn't 20 years old thinking, oh, gay marriage will be available to me in 30 years. I mean, I wasn't even thinking, you know, that wasn't even my reality. So I don't look back on that. And some uh, student asked me, well, you know, did you think like maybe you should be straight so you could get married? I'm like, "No." (laughs) no, I mean, I was a lesbian and I knew that, you know, and I wasn't I wasn't thinking the science fiction of what would happen. So when you think about people in the 40s, 50s and 60s, they weren't imagining, you know, 75 or 60, they weren't, they couldn't see that. That's not the possibility that they saw. They just saw like this day in front of me and maybe the next day, you know, I mean, even revolutionaries, the people who were, um, you know, dressing respectively, the Mattachine Society, Daughters of Belitis, like um, thinking like we should make some changes in this culture, you know, gay people aren't mentally ill, et cetera, those kinds of things. Um, the Gay Liberation Front that 
did the Belt Biltmore invasion here, where they busted up a, a psychiatry conference that was promoting conversion therapy and electric shock treatment and got the mic and said, you're going to listen to us. You know, that kind of stuff, the 60s, I mean, it's like the same question, like how did the 60s happen, right? How did people begin to start to be revolutionaries in a different, people have been revolutionaries forever. I mean, the Bastille, you know, like give us bread, but revolutions happen because people, the people on the ground, the people who actually are affected by it want more. And the people in the gay bar wanted at least what they had. With Stonewall, again, there's a lot of reasons. It was the only place, uh, you, one of the only places where you could touch dance. It was also a place that had a lot of room around it for gathering. Um, it also was the first pro protest that was televised. So that's the first time middle America sees gay people beamed into their televisions, you know? The Black Cat in 1967 wasn't televised in that same way. And it didn't go for days for people to join it. But the Black Cat happens in, on New Year's Eve. And it is a coalition with other people around, around police harassment. So what is the tipping point? You know, part of the tipping point for gay bars moving into revolution was all the revolutions that were around it. And also one of the things that people have talked with me about who were there was how important the music was. Like that, uh, you know, you say we want a revolution that they were speaking for everybody. So that music was in the in the bar, like everywhere else. And the music was very important. But the sense that this is all we have, you know, and like today, today, Judy Garland died today. Today's your day. Today's your day to pull this. You know, today's the day, New Year's Eve. And so you can't we can't touch each other. But two people kissed. And so that's it. You're going to that that's what's going to happen. You're going to raid tonight? You know, so that kind of a feeling, um, you know, you're interviewing me from New Hampshire. There is a feeling across this country for every state, really, live free or die. There is a feeling about that. I mean, that is, a, the, you know, the motto of New Hampshire where I grew up. And it's very important. Like, what? when do you decide that freedom is so impinged that I would rather that I will die for it. I will die for it. You know, this is it. This is my one, you know, when is it that I have decided? And I mean, I'm an activist. So I mean, when people say, I primarily have identified as an activist since I was 15. I laid in front of my first nuclear power plant rock in New Hampshire, Seabrook. And I actually ended up on the front page of the Boston Globe. My mother says, what were you, you know, and <laughs> what were you doing? But I've been, you know, an activist my whole life. And I took that very seriously, that quote, live free or die. And I think whether people I know that quote or not, there's a feeling in the United States that that is something that, you know, what does it mean? Uh, Black Lives Matter. What does it mean? Immigrant rights. What does it mean? When do I decide? When is it? When's the tipping point for me? Mm -hmm. so that freedom is so impinged that I'm going to fight. And if I die, well, you know, if I didn't, fight. I mean, I've laid in front of traffic. I was a member of ACT UP. I've done, I mean, to me, I have felt that way since I feel like I was conscious enough to be aware. And I think that there's something about that space. You know, I have this one space. At what point, at what point am I going to fight for that? I mean, 
And then also, I mean, it, it strikes me that if that's your one space, it's also a place where you feel, you know, in the outside world, you are alone. And in the in and it's you against the world, and your odds are smaller. But if it's you and all of your good friends who you've built this wonderful relationship with, who are the only people that have ever supported you in, and known you for who you really are, it makes sense that you might feel more bold um, in, in in making taking a bigger, bolder stand than. Well, yeah, Kelsey, and I think that's like you might, right? Where who is the you? That you only gets to be born and realized in that space. So that you, if I can't be in this space with you and you and you and you, I don't get a you. Mm. So okay, that's it. All bets are off, right? Mm. Joan Nestle talks about being in the sea colony and this butch woman practically crawling in who'd been beaten up like seven blocks before. And she came in, she said, I knew was if I could get into the bar, I'd be okay. And I've heard that story so many times from people. One of my friends who's at Triangle, the nation's first gay and lesbian elder house, it's here in, in LA. And I take my students on a field trip uh, every semester, go there. We, you know, they can actually meet <laughs> gay elders. Um, and I have a friend there, David Park Epstein, who talks about being in uh, Philadelphia, I think, and being chased by these macho guys and knowing if they could just get in the door, they could just get in the door that they would, and you know, they would be okay. They would at least be with other people and there would, there would be other people who would stand with them shoulder to shoulder, you know? And I think that's just, um, I, you know, it's, it's what we say religion is. Then there's a lot of stories like that, that I have a lot of stories and that's, um, and that's a completely different way to look at what that space and culture was. Hmm. It's interesting to me, part of your research is looking at butch women in these movements and kind of like carving out a space like they were there, you know, and I think even in um, the LGBTQ plus world, there is still sometimes a patriarchal norm where, where male stories tend to pop up to hire. And when I think about things like Stonewall, I think of drag queens, I think of, um, you know, men in, in cross dress and, and whatever. And I, I, I'm, I'm curious about your research into the butch women that were there as well. The first person to throw a punch at Stonewall was a butch woman, Stormy Delivery. <laughs> That's awesome. The first person to be arrested as far as, I mean, and that is in a book called Stonewall. Um, you know, there's a lot of different theories about how Stonewall started and take nothing away from drag queens, take nothing away from trans people who would, uh, who were there. But one of the problems with identifying um, gender different women who were there, butch women, is a lot of times they wouldn't have been identified. They would have been seen as men from an outside gaze. Mm. So for, me, for the original people looking, you might not have seen them. But I interviewed 10 men, particularly to, sorry, 10 men who particularly one of them to see if uh, the existence of butch women at Stonewall and Tree Sequoia, who was a bartender at Stonewall, who I interviewed. Oh yeah, definitely. Butch women were there. I mean, it, that's, you know, will we ever prove definitively what happened? But um, many people think that the first punch was was Stormy Delavere. Punching a cop. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a great, you know, and, 
And there was a woman who was arrested and put into the cop car and got out. And the, the crowd, I mean, that's part of the inciting incident of Stonewall. And I don't want to take anything away from Stonewall, but I do want to say that Stonewall is, um, it, be, it was because it was televised, but you have these instances happening all along, right? It's not the first time people protest against police harassment. That's not possible. You know, it's the first time it's televised and the rest of America finds out about it in what would have then been it's, you know, a big way, like a Twitter moment, you know, but really the, the courage to be one of the things that happens after the war and people are, you know, walking in the world in these ways is the heroism that was seen as a, like a 24 seven butch, somebody who's dressing um, masculine as a, in a female body um, and walking around one of the only, like, how did people find their, how did they find their, their way to these gay bars? There was only two recognized ways to find a way to a lesbian, to a gay girl bar, follow a butch woman. Hmm go to New York, find a butch woman and follow her or ask a cab driver or read a lesbian pope. And in the middle of the lesbian popes, you know, you could pick those up in Kansas. You could pick them up anywhere. And in the middle, you'd see, oh, they're going to the sea colony. They're going to the if club. They're going to the open door. And the writers of those have purposely said, like Ann Banning, we put those in there so people could find their way. Yeah. So you go to New York and it's like, oh, I want to go, I want to go to, you know, the, the sea colony. And the Catholic Legion of Decency at the end, the man was going to have to, I mean, the girl was going to have to, the femme would have to go be with a man, right? That was mandated, which was so, what was so revelatory about Carol or The Price of Salt by Patricia Highsmith, who published it under a pseudonym, Claire Morgan, was that they got to stay together. And I just taught that yesterday, Carol, and my students are like, but stay together, Dr. Cartier. And it's like, yeah, because they only look at each other across a crowded room. That's it. That's the staying together. And that was so amazing for that population that clubs, organizations were named at the, you know, there'll be a thousand carols. That, that phrase was <laughs> so important to people because she didn't go be with the man at the end. Like they, they're both, it's still possible. And I said, I once said, yeah, but I don't know. Do you think they stayed together? And I had this, this young gay kid go, yes, they had to. They had to stay together. And if you've seen the movie, you know, it's just a look. Yeah. But that was the only way to. So how important was the transgressiveness of gender in those periods? You know, this is prior. You're illegal. So how are you going to find your way to that community? That wasn't easy. It wasn't an easy thing. I mean, my first girlfriend and I, I remember trying to find the Duchess, which was an old school gay bar in 1979. When were we trying to find it? 1979 or 80. And it felt like we were in New York and we were just circling, like we couldn't, and circling and circling, like where the hell is this place? And we had this address. And I said, this is like, let me get out because it's got to be here. This is the address. And I'm walking in and I finally like see this tiny little thing. It says the address. And I knock on this door and a grid opens up in the door. And I said, is this the Duchess? And this guy says, yeah. 
And I'm like, oh my God. And I yelled to my, park the car. This is it. <laughs> and we went in and it was like down the rabbit hole. Yeah. You know, I mean, and that was the edges of that culture, you know, um, because I was really living in an, I mean, I was in lesbian feminism, bookstores, I was in this whole other world, but the bars were still obviously really important. And those kind of bars were still there, right? The, but prior to just that decade, that was it. So how did you find your way to that place? You know, yeah. and that was that journey itself. Judy Grand talks about the, the poet um, and uh, feminist amazing person, <laughs> Judy Grant talks about like, that was like Persephone, you know, when you went and often you went underground, often these places were underground and you, it was like this sacred journey to find your way. How do you find your way there and find your way back? Mm -hmm. That was a very big, a big, like, um, again, baptism, you did going through that and coming out, you know, so many religions, religious traditions talk about that initiation and your first time in a gay bar. That was like, like an amazing uh, baptism of fire and initiation to be there, mm -hmm. to, to owning who you were in a very dangerous, dangerous place, you know, mm -hmm. and finding your tribe. Well, is there anything I haven't asked you about that is like really a piece of your research that you would feel remiss not to share with educators? I think the big thing that I would say is the, you know, when the war starts, you have people released from biological families in some way for the first time, right? And they travel across the country. And I think that's really important and not often understood. That what does it mean to be released from biological family as a possible queer person? <laughs> you know, like, you know, could I, could I have done the same thing in little town, Georgia, or, you know, could I have found my way? And in, you know, 1956, James Dean is in Rebel Without a Cause. And that's, credited as being, I did a, a lot of research on James Dean. That's credited as being the beginning of teenage life. Like where you get to have, be a teenager, right? There's before that you're really a kid or an adult. And you know, when James Dean yells in that movie, you're tearing me apart to his parents. I mean, I think, you know, James Dean was gay. Uh, and that, that feeling you're tearing me apart is often what uh, most of America was doing to gay people. And so that that ability to go and have an income and to to live differently, to have a way to live differently. The gay bars were instrumental to that. It was the beginning of seeing myself, of pulling myself out and being like, yeah, I exist, you know, separate from, from you, from what you think I should be. And particularly for women of the necessity of marriage. Like, how can I get a job? Like, how can I pay my bills? How can I find community? How can I have that? The war provided like a window. Here's other people. Here's a job. You know, Rosie, Rosie the Riveters, were, you know, that was lesbians. Every that, Wow, here we are. How many gay people? And I guess I'd also say how many gay people I've talked to still, my best friend, you know, grew up in Southern California, my age. I mean, who thought I was, I'm the only one. So I think the the huge important thing that educators need to know is still today, 
when you identify these feelings in yourself, one of the first things that you think is, am I alone? Has anybody ever felt this? How do I even begin to think about where I can find other stuff? I mean, the search into the internet, the, uh, the ability to find yourself is easier now. But what is so important about the gay bars is that prior to any kind of social media, you would, almost everybody thinks that's it. I'm the only one. I'm the only one. There's nobody else like me, you know, and walking into a gay bar and you're like, there's other people like me. There's, uh, there's, I'm not alone. Like, I don't have to invent the wheel of who I am. Somebody else out there exists like me. And then it's almost like you're looking at the Milky Way galaxy and you went through it and you're like, what? There's a whole other thing out here. You know, there's people and stuff and music and ways of being and sex and family. And oh my God, this is, you know, Kath Weston's Families We Choose. It's a big deal to find your tribe. And it was the only way to find that. Um, and yeah. the opening story of my book, I guess if somebody was going to really talk about like this book, my book, Baby, You Are My Religion, you know, uh, I interviewed um, Mer Myrna Curlin is the opening story in the book. And um, she talks about how, um, and that was my 80th interview. And I interviewed her and, you know, we did like a two to three hour interview. And at the end, I always ask people what I always ask people, like, is there anything you want to say that I didn't ask you? <laughs> um, and she said, because I had interviewed her about um, being out in the 40s and that she had been lovers with one of the softball players. Because, you know, the softball players who softball was kept to keep baseball alive during the war. Um, the, uh, you know, that was all those women were in the bars. And so I'd interviewed her around that. And when she, and so I said, is there anything, you know, you want to say about the gay bars that I didn't ask you? Cause that's what I was in. And she said, well, they were my lifeline. And I'm like, what do you mean by that? Because she got married. She was Jewish and she got married in order to uh, populate the race. Cause so much pressure on Jewish women, right? After World War II, and still pressure on women to have kids. I get pressure. I get pressure to have kids today. I'm like, I'm not the Virgin Mary. I'm over 60. I'm not going to have kids, you know? <laughs> and so she gets, she marries a doctor. Right. And so she says to me, she goes, you know, they were my lifeline. And I'm like, I go, what, you know, what do you mean? And she says, when I got married, I had a list of phone numbers of the bars I went to in the forties and I had insomnia when I was married. And I would wake up in the middle of the night and call the first number. And I would just wait until somebody picked up the phone on the other end and I would listen to make sure that those places were still open. And I would listen till they hung up the phone. And then I'd call the next number. And, then I, and I did that for 17 years. I didn't even know how important the existence of those bars were, whether or not you went to them. I never heard that story before. And it was my 80th interview where I heard that story that to just know that the bar was still there 
was so important. You know, it was like, and we were both crying at that point. And I, you know, I sat down and I, I said, well, what, what did it mean to you, Myrna? I mean, you couldn't even go. And she goes, that was my lifeline. Hmm. That was my lifeline. And I, I needed to know that it was, even if I couldn't go, I needed to know it was still there. Wow. That's really powerful. And so it was like a beacon for people, you know, that to know that there was some place, I mean, she was married to a psychiatrist who could legally have had her lobotomized at that time. You know, I mean, insomnia, I would, I'm surprised she got any sleep at all. She's talking it. So for her to wake up and call and just, it's still there. And she said the only time she ever said anything was one time she said, is there an age limit? She wasn't sure if she would. I mean, it's just, and so she got divorced in 1970. Um, she got divorced when no fault divorce came in. But by that point, she'd been married for 17 years. And her only connection to this community was to call and listen. Wow. It's still there. It's still there. And a lot of uh, bartenders had those experiences where people would call. I mean, I talked to somebody who talked somebody out of suicide several times. And like six months after those calls stopped, a woman came up to her in the palms in LA and said, you saved my life. Yeah. Wow. Dr. Cartier, thank you so much for sharing this history and story with me. I feel like I've learned a lot about more the importance and um, power that these these bars had. Um, and I'm so grateful to learn from you about these people who, you know, I grew up in a time when gay marriage was legal for most of my, my life. And, um, and to think about, and especially where I am in New England, right? You know, like we, we were part of the leading trend in that way. And um, it doesn't mean I didn't see discrimination. I went to a college where gay people weren't allowed to be out, but it's it's so different to put in context the lived experiences of people in the period you researched. And I'm so excited for your students to be able to go and interview them at um, the home nearby your college. Like that is so amazing. And you're doing such important work. So thank you so much for sharing it with our audience. Thank you. I'm really, really happy to hear of your existence and remedial <laughs> her story. And um, yeah, I hope I can continue to be involved. It was really uh, great to bring my work to this forum. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.